Welcome back to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Juliana. I'm Sophia. And I'm Adriana. And we're thrilled to be bringing you a new episode today on the topic of the Eucharist. But before we do so, Sophia has a special announcement for you. Yes, our Pilgrim Soul Spotify playlists are back by popular demand. This is a series of playlists of choral music that I've put together for some liturgical seasons in the past. And so this time I made one for Advent. It's called Eternity in the Rags of Time, after a line from a poem by Malcolm Gwight for Advent. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but you can also find it by searching on Spotify. And I'm looking forward to entering this season with you both and with all of our listeners. So I hope that helps us do so prayerfully. Um, But that is not our topic today. As you mentioned, Julie, we're talking about the Eucharist today, which is a vast and... (laughs) inexhaustible topic. Um, But I felt really consoled by the fact that in thinking about all of the episodes that we've recorded so far in this beautiful path that we've embarked upon together, every episode we've done, in a sense, has been Eucharistic. Um, Mm -hmm. Thinking about topics like healing our wounds and overcoming division. Like, what is it but the Eucharist that does that? Who is Mary but mother of the Eucharist? How do we learn to carry the cross and experience the resurrection but through the Eucharist? At least speaking of my own life. So I'm looking forward to um, to speaking with you both about this. Adriana, this was your suggestion for a topic. Do you want to speak to uh, what moved you to propose it to us? Yeah, I mean, this was technically my idea for an episode, but... Like you said, Sophia, all of our episodes in a way are about the Eucharist, so it, mm-hmm. it's hard to take like ownership of the idea. But <laughs> I felt really inspired by these local initiatives that I've seen at my parish to really revitalize and like renew encounters with Christ through the Eucharist mm. that have been deeply inspired by the ongoing Eucharistic revival. Mm-hmm. It really just like moved in my heart maybe a prompting of the Holy Spirit, like we should do an episode on the Eucharist. This is such, the Eucharist is so personal to the three of us. And that hasn't always been true for me. My, I didn't grow up with a strong sacramental understanding. It like wasn't until university that Mm. I even received strong catechesis on the Eucharist. And then years after that, where I felt a growing intimacy with the Eucharist and my like deep need and gratitude that Christ brings himself in this way to us. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that was so transformational for me. And I know that a lot of people still haven't had that encounter with Christ through the Eucharist. And it was other people sharing their experience with me that, that provoked that desire in me. I guess it might be helpful for our followers that don't know, because we have some international followers and some who are not Catholic, um, that the National Eucharistic Revival is a movement in the United States, spearheaded by the United States bishops, to kind of restore the understanding of and devotion Mm -hmm. to Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. And so, uh, so that's what Adriana was referencing. And one thing that I think 
really ties into what you're explaining about your experience and your journey about the Eucharist. One thing I find really beautiful about the way that they've organized it is that it began on the Feast of Corpus Christi in 2022, and it ends on Pentecost in 2024 of next year. And so there is kind of this recognition that our devotion to the Eucharist should lead to a sending forth, to an evangelization, mm-hmm. just like the the apostles who received the Holy Spirit and Pentecost and then were sent forth to baptize all nations. Um, we too kind of are enlivened by this great mystery and, and thus driven to share it with everybody and help others come to this deeper understanding and the fact that Jesus Christ is with them. Mm. I didn't know that, Julie, and I love that. Yeah, with yes, the dates. I love and that. So this can be our our poor offering, our little contribution to that missionary endeavor. <laughs> but it's true. This is like a spontaneous movement of the heart. It's reflected in this structure of the revival, but it is something that's endogenous and natural in one's own encounter with the Eucharist, mm-hmm. no matter what. Like it's I remember clearly, and I think I've still told this story on the podcast before, when I started going to Eucharistic adoration regularly, it was the summer during and then after I was in Paraguay with Father Aldo Trento. And when I got back to Notre Dame, I kept it up going in campus ministry. The building that housed campus ministry also had Eucharistic adoration. And I remember coming out of the chapel one day into the sunlight on God Quad at Notre Dame and just having this sense in my heart of this joy that was bursting out of it, but in disbelief that people around me didn't know, not all of them knew, this love that I had encountered in the Eucharist, this gaze of unconditional acceptance and mercy, this depth to my heart in those moments of silent prayer that became the place for such intimacy with Christ. And I like couldn't withhold myself from like speaking about it explicitly or implicitly, but but sharing what had been given to me. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, yeah, it's such a testament to the fact that this is the way that Christ fulfills his words, that he's going to be with us until the end of time, mm-hmm. and um, that he makes us sacraments of his presence. Like, without this, I, I don't know, I wouldn't see that those words were true. Yeah, that's beautiful, Sophia. And I guess I'm just, like, struck by what both of you said. And, like, the Eucharist doesn't happen alone. It's not a solitary meal. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, there can be at times, like, even a misordered piety where it's like me and Jesus in the Eucharist and this like intimacy Mm -hmm. that's just between the two of us. And that is true, but just on a surface level, like we're consuming the whole body of Christ. We're becoming Christ all in one another. I mean, it's just as simple as like Pentecost happening to the apostles in public the descent of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and then they're given forth this task to then evangelize and share Christ with the whole world. And the mission that comes with the Eucharist is equally important. It, it reminds me of Pope Benedict where he said something like, if a devotion to the Eucharist does not lead to increased love of neighbor, then it's intrinsically fragmented. Yeah. And it also everything you're saying makes me just think about like the encounters we see in Scripture with Jesus, John and Andrew fishing and like Jesus looking at them, how Christ looked at you in the Eucharist. But then other people that were there didn't have that experience. And how that, I think, really discloses God's method to come in these limited human ways 
as a person born of a woman in Palestine to now in bread and wine encountered inside the church through the hands of the priest. These are all just like such small, limited ways, but revealing such a love for for our freedom. Yeah. Like ev- everyone else on the beach could ignore him if mm-hmm. they chose to, or you could have chosen to ignore him, and we still can choose to ignore him. That's how deeply like he values our freedom. Mm-hmm. Because what is the Eucharist but the revelation of the mystery, right? Like we say it's the representation of Christ's sacrifice on the cross uh, in a way to perpetuate that through the centuries, right? That's why we call it a memorial. But what does that mean? Like in comprehensible (laughs) English language, it's like the mystery who by definition as mystery is, is unfathomable, ungraspable, unknowable through like mere definitions and concepts this mystery chose to reveal himself and exactly as you're saying through the humble things the concrete material things of this world through the body of an infant born of mary and now through bread and wine right just as the body hid his divinity now the bread and wine hides both his divinity and his humanity but it's the same method of god who's with us in this way and so it's the same, exactly what you're saying about the Gospels, like the same faith, the same childlike simplicity that enabled the disciples to recognize him in Galilee is what's asked of us if we're going to recognize his presence now under the appearance of, of bread and wine. Yeah. And in a sense, it's scandalous, the teaching of the Eucharist. Totally. That the mystery incarnate becomes present. And yet the incarnation was scandalous. The people that Christ chose as his apostles were scandalous. His crucifixion was scandalous. I was talking to a friend who was recently ordained and like he was just marveling at this because, I mean, it's scandalous as a member of the congregation, but it's even more scandalous, he was saying, as a priest because he has the proper materials and then he just opens a book and says the words and regardless of the state of his soul, regardless of his personal merit, the bread and wine become Jesus Christ truly present. And I mean, just being able to see it through his eyes as a newly ordained priest highlights God's desire to be with us and his just mm-hmm. his humility in allowing man to facilitate, to be a vessel for the Holy Spirit to, to bring about this sacrament. Um, and all through, why? Because... Why does he do that? Because he desires to be intimate with us. The intimacy available in the Eucharist is something that goes beyond any other human experience of closeness. It's difficult to put into words. You know, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, but through the Eucharist, he's with us in a way that nobody else can ever be with us. It's it's just... um, it's it's a closer physical companionship than each of you had with your children while they were in the womb. And so that Christ had with Mary when he was in her womb. Like it's the same. Yeah. There's a similar element of silence yeah. and mystery and interiority. But exactly as you're saying, like it's on a whole nother level. He gives us his flesh to eat. Yeah. And again, I'm just struck like he doesn't do it without us. Mm-hmm. Like even your friend like can recognize in a way, like, so little is needed from him, but it doesn't happen without him. Like, we, bread doesn't become bread without human cooperation, and wine doesn't become wine without human cooperation. And we bring forth those gifts, and he says yes to the priestly vocation and yes to ordination. Mm -hmm. Like, the whole 
incarnation doesn't happen without Mary's yes. And it reminds me, like, Pope Francis in one of his recent documents on the liturgy said something like, for early Christians, it was entirely natural that they saw the incarnation of Christ continuing in the sacraments. Mm-hmm. And I, I totally agree that, like, to claim what we claim about the Eucharist is scandalous, but it's scandalous in the same level of what we claim about Jesus Christ. Right. If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, if he's God become man, then the Eucharist follows naturally. Right. Right. Like in the episode of the disciples going to Emmaus, and it's precisely the breaking of the bread that then enables them to understand how the scriptures had been opened and that Christ was present before them, that like these mysteries are one. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and they mutually illuminate each other. Beautiful. But to go back to what you're saying just before, I completely agree about the, the what this radical presence of Christ with me and within me to me draws out is in the first place, awe, but secondly, a deep awareness of my own poverty and inadequacy and unworthiness yeah. and even my sinfulness, right? Like mm-hmm. I've been um, recently just before receiving the Eucharist at Daily Mass, picturing my heart as this barren and like rocky wasteland, right? Um, which it so often is. But at the same time, seeing that in this choice of God to descend each and every time the mass is celebrated, to descend and pour himself out to us, he is the sower scattering the seed on this rocky mm-hmm. wasteland and sending the Holy Spirit to nourish those seeds and make them grow. And so there's this Christian song that it's on our playlist of um, Christian songs that aren't awful, Julie. We have this joint playlist of... That aren't awful. <laughs> that aren't awful. Yeah, that aren't awful. Like uh, like most of them are. <clears throat> that says like, you grow your roses in my barren soul. And I love it because it makes me think of the miracle of Our Lady's apparition to Juan Diego and how these roses mm. were grown on this barren and rocky soil. Mm in Mexico as like a sign that God was with the indigenous people and to trust that the same thing can happen in my heart that yeah it's a barren rocky wasteland but he who is all powerful can make roses grow there if it's for his glory and so my task is to be faithful and to not let my inadequacy make me say no to him which St. Teresa of Avila says over and again that that's false humility is saying like I'm poor and sinful so I'm not going to pray so I'm not going to go to mass so I'm not going to let you come and give me this grace that true humility is is to look at him and be radiant to look and behold his glory and his gratuitous love for what it is and this you know this this sets me free right yeah that really resonates with my experience and For me, one thing that's helpful in combating this false humility is the objectivity of the Eucharist and Jesus present in the Eucharist Hmm. in the sense that I cannot deny his presence with me. I can't deny his desire to be with me. And I also can't deny that when I receive the Eucharist and I'm properly disposed, that's an objective grace for my soul. And whether I was paying attention to Mass or not, or whether I was praying the correct prayers or not. um, Or depressed or not, or sleep-deprived or not. Exactly, yeah. Or circumstances that that have nothing to do with with morality. Um, He's with me. He came to be with me. The Holy Spirit is with me. And 
I don't know, left to my own devices, I would tend to doubt that a lot. And I would mm-hmm. probably feel forgotten by God or too sinful to approach him or something like that. And yet, and yet he comes to me. And I think another practice of prayer that's really helpful for me is to watch the congregation receive the Eucharist at Mass. I mean, you see every sort of person, right? Mm-hmm. Young, old, sick, healthy, rich, poor, every race every background, and you just see him being poured out again and again and again to every single person as food for that person, as food for their journey, as as the manna of the new covenant for that person. And you also can see like the brokenness of humanity mm-hmm. and you see him like pouring himself out without regard to that. That's the universality of his sacrifice. And that's how deep his desire to be intimate with each one of us is just seeing just seeing the Eucharist as love and as sacrificial love for every single person sitting next to me in the pews kind of helps me have that gaze on myself in all of life not only when I'm you know walking down um the aisle to receive him like as a self-awareness as a tabernacle or a temple of the Holy Spirit yeah and just like a greater reverence and awe and humility born mm. of that awe like recognizing with my eyes his desire to um, to be with me. And yeah, and that what defines you is that beautiful. Yeah, I love what you're saying, Julie. One, I mean, there's multiple aspects to draw out, but one aspect that struck me of watching and gazing at the whole church receive the body of Christ and just talking about like the importance of human cooperation, but at times that can be someone else's cooperation. Like, hmm. Exactly what we're saying, like it's not it's not a solitary meal. Like you could be standing outside the church feeding a baby in like a terrible state mm-hmm. or just like in kind of in despair that you're not able to be present and the Eucharist is still happening and someone else's prayer is still made effective like on behalf of you or for our children who like don't have who aren't yet at the age of reason to even actively know that they're participating in the sacrifice of of the Eucharist are still included and the universality of that yeah that Christ makes possible through the Eucharist um I also really like gazing at people as they receive the Eucharist and I received this from someone else but I like to say the body of Christ over and over again as each person receives and reflect on them like this is christ now before me all these people here were all Mm -hmm. christ i love that and it's so clearly a i mean even watching them go up what does it look like but a line of people waiting for like a food handout right (laughs) and like Mm -hmm. just illuminates the nature of the eucharist as a sacrament of begging right Mm. of begging for the one who begs for our heart to come to us and be united to us and To me, this is what's been so educative about the Eucharist is to take all of my needs and all of the needs of the people who I love and all of the needs of the church and the world and to bring them there. And in asking for my daily bread, asking for all of these things, too. And it really is transformative, not, you know, not because I see Eucharistic miracles in front of my eyes or um, all of a sudden have these prayers answered, you know, with lightning bolts and flashes of thunder. But like, it's transformative because I see that the walls that are in my heart between myself and these other people are broken down. Mm-hmm. Their needs become my own. I have a passion for for their good that I don't give myself as the instinctively self-interested person that I am. 
Um, and so it's not just a communion with Christ, as we were saying before, that's solitary, that's between me and him, but rather an incorporation into his body with an awareness of all of the other members to which I'm joined and our essential unity. And so really learning that my life, my life is not about me. My life is to be fulfilled and to become most truly myself is to recognize and live my belonging and to to ask on behalf of everyone to whom I belong for Christ to come. Yeah, and I think if we go back to what we believe about the Eucharist, it explains why that is. We believe that the Eucharist makes Christ's sacrifice present in time again. And it's Christ offering himself again to the Father, even though his sacrifice on the cross was complete and once and for all, it's made present again. And that explains why it's for the whole world. That explains why it's mm-hmm. it's for our children who can't participate in the Mass. It's for the people who don't even go to Mass, don't even know about it. It's for me when Mass is being celebrated across the world. And this is why it breaks, because we are, we are sitting at the foot of the cross. We're sitting at the foot of the cross and we're being invited to bring all of ourselves. And, and as you were saying, Sophia, like all of our needs, but the needs of my neighbor, everything to the foot of the cross and to join Christ in prison that again to the Father. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at it that way, we should be radically changed by this. We cannot go to the foot of the cross and walk away the same. And if we are, we don't either don't really believe it or I don't know, maybe we just don't really believe it. (laughs) Um, Fragmentation for sure. Yeah. 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 And with a teaching that is so radical and one that Many people see with a a veil over their eyes if they're not in the church. I do think we have to constantly be correcting ourselves against the against the dominant understanding of the time and and say like, "Am I living this belief? Do I really believe? Am I walking away radically different um, every time I receive the Eucharist or not?" And I'm curious what you guys... Even if I don't feel it, to be clear. Yes, like, it's yes, not on the yeah, sentimental yeah. level. Yeah, it's not a sentimentalism, but on an ontological change that's happening right. to me. Yeah. And I'm curious what you would say you've seen the changes, like what you think that means for yourself or for your loved ones that you've seen in them. Yeah, when I... This is why I appreciate, like, Augustine's question at the beginning of Confessions, is it better to know or love you, Lord? And, like... The answer is both. And the catechesis around the sacrifice of the Mass is so important. Like, I present myself at Mass aware that Christ is, like, declaring his love for me again unto death. And also that practice generates in me or creates in me um, a desire to bring my own sacrifices before, before him and plunge them also into the mystery of death and resurrection and to see my life that way. And it wasn't possible to do that before. Mm. Of course, like naturally Christ reveals himself, like in all of creation, we see death and resurrection. Um, I think right now where it's like autumn season and the leaves are all changing this beautiful golden red and Mm -hmm. in their death, they're glorified. But I need, like, I need the Eucharist even to educate me about the leaves, let alone, like, my, the entirety of of my life and mm. of the meaning of, like, every sort of little mundane sacrifice of the day or sacrifices that I 
don't want to make or I don't necessarily even see the value in at times. Like it's not for Mm -hmm. me and to put those before Christ and know that he can resurrect them. And that's like transformational for, for every interaction. And what you're saying, Julie, about um, the Eucharist transforms the way that you look at yourself, knowing that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, like reminds me of kind of a continued transformation I've had around like the changing of my body after pregnancy and childbirth, Mm. especially stretch marks, which I struggle to love and kind of having this transformation after Paul and instead of like seeing them as like kind of scars of of this experience I went through or something, seeing them as like a memory of my sacrifice and a beautiful memory, like the memory of my pregnancies that I cherish so much. And in that, like realizing like no wonder Christ resurrected with his wounds so present because they're like a beautiful memory for Christ of, yes. of his love, of the depth of his love. And him giving that to me now about something that I, that I struggle still to find beautiful, but like my stretch marks are too a memory of mm. of a beautiful sacrifice that I cherish. I love that example, Adriana. So it's educating you. Yeah, it's converting your gaze, not from one moment to the next, but by living yeah. with him. And I don't know, in response to your question, Julie, um, it's something that happens slowly over time. And yet I would say, looking back on my experience, that I have a clear judgment that the Eucharist is what's educated me to embrace the cross. The image that comes to mind here is probably the most powerful experience that I've had knowingly of receiving the Holy Spirit through the Mass, which was actually when my friend, Brother Andrew, we were in Jerusalem, and he celebrated the Mass for us in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, in the Holy Sepulchre, within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, so mm-hmm. where Christ was buried, and, and also, therefore, where the resurrection happened. Mm-hmm. It was wow. so apparent to me in a, in a visceral way through the liturgy, in part because the prayers are adapted to talk about, like, this place where Christ offered his life for us in a, in a beautiful way. It was so clear to me that it's through the Eucharist that the cross and the resurrection reach me. The Eucharist makes them present to me. It it inaugurates in my life now the new world that, the new covenant, as you were saying before, but the new world that broke into being when God died and rose for, for me, for my salvation. And I've been provoked by that to in saying yes to the Eucharist, do the work of remembering that I'm saying yes to the cross. As St. Elizabeth Ann Seton has this devastating line where she says, we have no communion in the Eucharist except in as much as we have it under the form of the cross. I'm paraphrasing there, but Mm -hmm. like, and that's been provocative for me and, and been an education, as you were saying, over time to look at my life and and look at crosses that I have in my life, not as things to run away from, but as invitations to intimacy, just as I see the Eucharist as an invitation to intimacy, mm-hmm. to make the cross, as St. Angela Foligno says, the nuptial bed of my relationship to Christ um, in very concrete ways. Like I talked about on our mm. on our episode about the cross, like probably the dominant experience of the cross that I have in my life now is is my work and how unfulfilling I find it and how... 
how difficult it is for me to make this sacrifice of of doing this job that doesn't correspond with what I desire for my life. But to see it as his request for me to be with him on Calvary and therefore his invitation to witness the resurrection that comes from that. Like it's the Eucharist is the food that gives me the energy to follow him in this and also the gift that enlivens and inflames my desire to do it. Mm. Um, and so I think without the Eucharist, I i mean, I don't know, because fortunately I have never been, except in COVID, been asked to spend long times away from Christ in the Eucharist. So I don't know. But I imagine that it would be incredibly hard for me to make this sacrifice if I didn't begin every morning by going to Mass. So like your stretch marks, Adriana, like I see a super tangible shift mm. in in my consciousness and my capacity. And then also my my gaze on other people, because, you know, you can't look at your life this way mm. and then look at another person who's suffering the same way, you know? Yeah, I'm grateful in preparing for this episode, having a newborn who I'm breastfeeding, God in the church in her mystery, like the Eucharist is so Marian. It's so, I mean, the church is so Marian and... I think God gave like the most natural correlation to the Eucharist through the breastfeeding mother who gives of her food of her body yeah, and gives life to the other. And it's what she's made for. And it includes sacrifice, obviously. And some of the sacrifice too is like, you know, a bunch of my hair is falling out. And that's just like a totally natural thing that happens every time I, I'm pregnant and have a child and breastfeed that child. Um, but today I was nursing Paul during the Eucharistic prayer and it was just so apparent to me that like I am made for this sacrifice, but not to be destroyed. Like this consummation Mm -hmm. leads to my life and my life eternal, my life like right now, the hundredfold in a way that's so unimaginably more joyful and alive than could be otherwise. I love that. And it makes me think of Julie's recent visit to Boston. And then I was able to see her in D.C. when I was there for a talk. And we had this experience of being together in the wake of recording this episode on virginity. So what was in my mind was a consideration of how the forms of life that are asked of us are given so that we can be conformed to Christ and say yes to him. And so this colored my gaze on on what I saw in Julie and you and in your family and I saw so clearly, like, okay, we talk about, yeah, virginity is the, in some senses, a superior way of life because it more closely reflects the eschatological destiny that we all have of neither being given in marriage nor being married and and making that present now in real. But like, oh my gosh, I mean, the family life is so Christological. Like you in saying yes to Frank and in bearing children together, like your life is no longer yours. Your time, everything that's given to you no longer belongs to you, but to us. Like in simple things like uh, deciding where to go for vacation or what to cook that week for dinner or like none of these decisions are made by an atomized individual. It's necessarily a, a we. Everything has been given to you and exists within you and for like with reference to this we to whom you belong. And that's true of all of us, right? And so I see so beautifully, Adriana, as you were saying as well, that in giving your bodies for the life of another, you are participating in Christ's Eucharistic sacrifice in the way that we're all called to. 
and how beautiful it is that that's all he asks of us. Like, this is the criterion for salvation is, did you do these things for the least of my brethren? And you're doing them for your children, right? You're So you're doing them for Christ and how simple our salvation is in that sense. And yes, it's the cross for sure. Don't get me wrong. Like, I've seen you get up six times at night with your babies and it's like harrowing, but it's also the truest way to live. Harrowing. Yeah, it is. is. (laughs) I agree. Duff's like out of a horror film. And yet like, (laughs) it's the truest way to live is to surrender your life to another, you know? Thank you for sharing that, Sophia. I was, it's funny because in thinking about what it means to be Eucharistic, I also was thinking about the early months of motherhood, but with Elena, and actually I was thinking about you and not my experience of motherhood. In particular in those months and in the, at the end of my pregnancy was a time that was just really difficult in terms of how I was looking at myself and just in part, like looking at my weakness. It was the first time I had felt like really weak. Uh, and so you came to live with me in California and I wanted to welcome you with like, I, I don't know, I wanted to be hospitable. Um, and just all the things that you would do to welcome somebody mm-hmm. you love who's coming across across the ocean to live with you. Like I would want to make your room really beautiful and and plan fun things and like cook all this wonderful food for you. And yet because of my weakness, like you show up and then you immediately start making me dinner every night. It's like I, I like hired an indentured servant or something mm-hmm. like, and you're like doing my laundry <laughs> and like you make me breakfast Gosh. every day until you leave. And it was just, I didn't leave the house. Like I didn't do anything. And I guess like, where I'm going with this is the way I looked at myself was as a failure and as a disappointment and like lacking in virtue for being unable to do those things. Mm-hmm. And naturally I was tempted to imagine Christ looking at me that way. Like I failed because I didn't live up to um, the virtue that that he calls me to. And the real corrective for me mm-hmm. was your gaze and Frank's gaze, my husband's gaze on me during this time. And you never showed me, you showed me so much mercy and compassion and love and understanding and generosity. And then I couldn't imagine that a God who is love would look at me any differently. And it was just a real corrective to you show me the Mm -hmm. face of Christ. You show me how he views me and it corrects my ideologies and my temptations and just it's like thoughts in my head. It's Christ incarnate again. And, and just like his incarnation the first time, it corrects all of my human the the falsities that I have, the the stories I make up in my head about him. Um, and it shows me again who he is and like how radical it is and, mm-hmm. and how merciful he is. And so I think that's what I've I've seen, I guess, a transformation in those close to me. And I've experienced it on the other end, what it means to be Eucharistic, what it means to mm-hmm. to be Christ and to be transformed into him in the Eucharist and then to come home and like love me in that way. Yeah, I love what you're saying, Julie, because I mean that just resonates so much with my experience too that in order to receive more and more of the fullness of God's love for me a conversion of heart is also required like mm-hmm. and a repentance for whether it's my ego or my pride or yeah a refusal to love myself that's somewhat intentional or disordered or however like not everything is of the will but um, even that too is healed. Mm-hmm. And I think there's like a real relationship there between repentance, conversion, and mercy. And it isn't a 
judgmental relationship. It's like a freeing relationship. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me of that time. And thank you for elaborating on it, uh, Adriana, in it. I think that's a beautiful place maybe to conclude our episode because for me, it illuminates that. I mean, for me, it was my utter joy to be with you in those months, right? And to to give my time in the service of the miracle that was happening in front of my eyes of your growing family. And I find myself sorrowful at our distance. I mean, we're on the same side of the ocean now, but I don't live with you and I can't accompany you in the way that I would like. And yet the truth of the Eucharist means that if I receive his presence and allow it to transform me, our unity is deeper than it would be if I was next to you and not doing that. That Mm -hmm. it really is the sacrament of unity, not just on this high-level mystical body of Christ, but like in my desire to be with Mm -hmm. you. And so all I need to do is be faithful to the way that he comes to me and what he asks of me. And in doing that, I will be participating in the salvation that I want to come to you and you, Adriana, and, and all of my loved ones and Israel and Gaza where there's war right now and everywhere. Like, mm. yeah, to just receive life and give my life back to life itself is like all that's asked of me. Thank you so much, Sophia. Yeah, thank you, Sophia. On that note, I do have a challenge this month. Hit it. In participation with the Eucharistic Revival, they have a website, and I would just invite you to explore the website, and in particularly the invitation to Eucharistic Pilgrimage next summer. Mm. That's concluding in July um, in Indianapolis, but there is a western route, a northern route, a southern route, and an eastern route, I believe. Um, the western route is what I've looked at. It starts in San Francisco and ends in Indianapolis. My family were hoping to to meet the pilgrimage in, in Salt Lake City. But yeah, if that's available to you, and I think they're even looking for perpetual pilgrims to do the entirety of the routes, mm-hmm. which would be amazing. So yeah, just explore that and pray with the opportunity for pilgrimage as our the title of our podcast, Naturally Fitting. Nice. <laughs> Thank you, Adriana. Do either of you have a media recommendation? I'd like to recommend Babette's Feast, which is a movie that I can't remember which popes, but I feel like numerous popes have said it was their favorite. Um, (laughs) It's a Danish film about a French refugee who's welcomed in by some a bit austere Protestant ladies. And through relationship with one another, they have a surprising encounter that's sort of Eucharistic in nature. So I think it's a beautiful allegory for what happens to us every time in the Mass and a provocation to reflect on going back to our episode on the body as well, the the sacramentality of all of our, all of existence including ourselves. So if our listeners haven't seen that, I would highly recommend Babette's Feast. Yeah, so good. Thanks, Sophia. Well, have a beautiful start to Advent everyone and please check out our playlist. It's awesome. We'll see you next time and as ever, know of our prayers for you. 